Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 128, recorded on July 30th, 2019. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. This will help others to find the show and grow the community. Today, we will talk about the merger of JustEatAndTakeAway.com, about the massive hacking scandal in Bulgaria about the valuations of European tech unicorns and much more. We have also prepared an interview with Riatta Ilo, the international affairs manager at Finnish Business Angel Network, also known as FIBAN, whom I met at the Startup Extreme Conference in Vos, Norway, uh, last month in June. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, welcome back to Europe. Hi, Andre. Thanks so much. Really great to be back. And if I got this right, I saw that you tried out the Beyond Burger from our podcast last week. Yeah, I did. Like, really? And about an hour after we recorded uh, the last episode and talked about uh, food tech, I actually went to the supermarket and uh, I saw Beyond Burger on the shelf and I thought I have to, I have to try it. And I have to say it, it, it went pretty good. So uh, I did like the taste. Uh, what I was saying before, uh, before that we started the recording, I can uh, repeat it again. I don't think that uh, all these Beyond Meats should try to uh, taste like meat because it will not work. But the taste of uh, Beyond Burger itself is is okay. So I would definitely be up for eating it uh, once in a while instead of uh, having like meat or something else for dinner. That's fine. So maybe the European Parliament's new proposal um, won't be so damaging after all. Just lean into the alternative rather than try to be something they're not. Yep, that's, uh, that, that, that's the idea. So I do agree for once uh, with the European Parliament, I suppose. Great. Well, our, we're talking about food tech again this week. Yeah, exactly. So the, this is this is the big news that again is technically from uh, this week and not uh, last week, uh, but still it's definitely worth uh, talking about right now. And uh, what I'm talking about is the announced merger of uh, two food delivery companies. Uh, that's uh, Just Eat and uh, Takeaway.com, and the deal would value the joint company at more than 10 billion euros, and this is supposedly much higher uh, than its main European competitor, Deliveroo, uh, which was. Re- reportedly valued at $4 billion last time it raised money. And speaking of this last time it raised money, I will talk about it a little bit later, but there is also an interesting story uh, related to that. So let's talk about the details first. Uh, So what are actually Just Eat and Takeaway.com? They are both takeaway food delivery companies. They're both pretty old, actually. They're about 20 years old. Uh, and they're both uh, publicly listed, and uh, they both have uh, a market cap of uh, around 5 billion euros. So Takeaway is headquartered in Amsterdam, and Just Eat is located in London. Uh, Interestingly, Takeaway actually was also founded in the Netherlands, uh, but Just Eat is a Danish company originally. It was founded by uh, five, I think, uh, Danish entrepreneurs, and then uh, at some point one of them bought uh, the shares of uh, the others and uh, moved the company uh, to grow it uh, in the UK. 
Now, if you're interested in numbers, uh, the story on uh, TechCrunch that I'm referring to in the show notes has a bunch of those, uh, and I will just go over uh, some most important uh, details. So first of all, uh, the current CEO of uh, Takeaway.com, Yitzhak Krun, uh, he will be the CEO of the new company. Uh, then the CFO of Just Eat, Paul Harrison, will become the CFO of the new company. And then the, this new company will have two, uh, instead of one, chief operating officers, and they will both come from Takeaway.com. Uh, their names are Brent Wissing, uh, the current uh, CFO, and Jörg Gerbig, uh, the current COO. So that's a mouthful, but we had to go through it. Uh, now, the combined company will be headquartered in Amsterdam, uh, but the parties expect a quote-unquote significant part of its operations to be located in the UK, which is the home market of Just Eat. So I also haven't seen anything regarding whether there's going to be a new combined brand uh, for these two companies. So I do assume that both uh, Just Eat and Takeaway.com will continue to coexist. And uh, on that note, uh, Takeaway already actually operates under a lot of different brands in uh, different countries, uh, unlike Just Eat. So it's not something unheard of. Now, the deal is structured technically as an acquisition of Just Eat by Takeaway.com. So technically, it's uh, the second time in the past year uh, that uh, Takeaway makes a really big purchase. Back in December 2018, uh, the company also paid 930 million euros uh, for the German operations of Deliveroo, one of its main rivals in the space. And then another interesting bit of context here is that back in 2016, so three years ago, uh, Takeaway.com already bought the operations of Just Eat in the Netherlands and Belgium, and it paid 22.5 million euros uh, for it. So it's not the first time that the two companies are uh, trading uh, parts, let's say. Now, uh, so what's going to happen now uh, is uh, under the merger regulations in the UK, Just Eat and Takeaway.com have until August 24th, so about three weeks, to get final approval from investors and confirm the deal. Afterwards, as far as I understand, it will also have to uh, be approved by the competition, competition authorities. I'm not sure if it's going to be both in Europe and locally or just on the European Union level. Uh, but speaking of the competition, uh, remember I mentioned a minute ago that Deliveroo was reportedly valued at $4 billion in its last funding round. Uh, the interesting part here uh, that this funding actually may not happen. Uh, because uh, it was a $575 million round uh, raised from Amazon. And this one has been halted uh, by the British regulator called the Competition and Markets Authority. And according to the New York Times, the authority said, I quote, it had reasonable grounds to suspect that Amazon and Deliveroo had, quote unquote, ceased to be distinct uh, businesses or that they would essentially merge in if the investment were to go through. The quote ends. So basically, the British regulator suspects uh, that Amazon, uh, with this last round, would effectively acquire uh, Deliveroo, and it doesn't seem like it's very happy with it. So really interesting consolidation uh, trend uh, going on in this space, and let's see uh, whether uh, this deal between uh, Just Eat and uh, Takeaway will make it past uh, the regulators. Uh, Natalie, what is your take on this? Do you What do you think of uh, both companies? Did you ever use them? So I'm kind of famously known for not using any of these different kind of takeaway companies and ordering food delivery, just not part of my demographic. But why I think it's interesting is it really kind of is part of this growing trend that we've seen for kind of these mergers 
that are marketed or kind of spun as a collaboration. Um, and this isn't the the first time that we've seen this um, recently in, in the car sharing space. We also talked about this on the podcast. And what I think is really interesting is you have executives from both companies taking part in, in, in the new restructured company and that everyone kind of is is coming along as a big, happy family. And I think this is also um, a kind of a, a very interesting um, development in this space as well. Yeah, it's funny that it also happens in uh, different industries. Remember, there were these uh, four different uh, uh, startups that were working with Airbnb listings, uh, and uh, they just all came together. That was a really surprising move, I have to say. Right. So maybe we are seeing larger com- companies need to be larger to compete. I know Uber Eats is also trying to make a very strong play in Europe and outside of its home market of the US. So maybe that's what needs to happen that companies, you're going to have kind of these monopolistic style companies kind of fighting against one another. Um, and I think that it is is a, is frustrating for startups because it's difficult to compete if everyone you're competing against is these behemoths, especially in food delivery, where you has been such a great entry point for lots of new uh, ventures over the years. So it'd be interesting to see if this actually is allowed to go through or not. Yeah, it is interesting. And also uh, just... Uh... Read some older news stories about uh, all these uh, food delivery companies in Europe, and yeah, Uber is ma- Uber Eats is making a pretty big bet uh, this year, and they are set to uh, be increasing uh, their headcount from 300 to 900 in Europe in 2019. I mean, it's still less uh, than uh, the headcount of, uh, for example, Just Eat, which employs I think 3,600 people, but that's uh, that's globally though. But it's getting to comparable comparable numbers, so we're definitely going to see more uh, competition in the space. And for the record, I have to say, by the way, that I never used uh, uh, Uber Eats in my life. I, d- I did use both uh, Just Eat and uh, Takeaway.com, but never Uber Eats. It just somehow never comes to comes to my mind that uh, it exists when I need to order something. Mm-hmm. But, but sure what's um, really nice is if you have the Uber app and if you're using Uber in different European markets, you actually see offers and opportunities for Uber Eats right in the app. So they're actually able to kind of lean on that market there that they already have um, in existing um, in the ride sharing market. So um, it makes um, competing against them really tricky because they have all this added competencies. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So basically, what we what we see, as far as I understand, is that on one hand we have this Uber Eats that leans on uh, Uber's uh, uh, ubiqu- Uber being a ubiquitous app in Europe, and on, but on the other hand you have uh, uh, just Eat and Takeaway.com, which are both twenty years old, and uh, they have this like fundamental user user base and people who have basically grown up uh, uh, using uh, these apps and using them even before those were apps. I remember doing this like ten years ago when they were not on mobile at all you just uh, go through browser and i think i also read uh, that for uber eats the percentage of uh, orders made from uh, mobile is much 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 higher uh, than that of uh, takeaway.com and just eat so i i think we come to two very different uh, scenarios in this well, and Andre, you also make a really good point kind of talking about 10 years ago when these apps weren't online, but you said the interface of the, their experience of, 
uh, just eat and take away hasn't really improved that much. <laughs> well, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember just eat really. I only used it when I was living in the UK. That was a few years ago. But I do use uh, the uh, Dutch version of uh, takeaway.com often. And yes, I don't think it changed a lot. Mostly, it ha- it's it's the same. But it's but it's the case also for another very big uh, app in the Netherlands, uh, uh, Marktplatz. That's basically the local uh, version of uh, eBay. Uh, its interface has not changed in 10 years, like almost not at all, honestly. And it's probably, probably, I don't think it's because they neglect this part of the experience, but probably it's uh, a result of sort of user research. Maybe people just wanted to stay the same way. Maybe uh, they just don't want to lose the maybe the older generation of uh, people who kind of got very used to uh, this way of interacting with the app. I'm not really sure what uh, what it really is, though. Interesting point. And um, speaking about um, restructuring, and um, I still hate the new Twitter redesign. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I will ask it uh, every week uh, from now. Natalie, do you still hate the Twitter redesign? Maybe at some point you will come to terms with it. <laughs> okay, let us talk about uh, hacking. What was it this time? Right, so... I've been following an interesting story that's been developing over the course of the last month. And you might have seen the headlines a few weeks back, how the entire working population of Bulgaria, so 5 million people or so, were hacked when the country's national tax scheme was broken into. So this hack was the largest ever to be reported in the country and caused worldwide consternation when it was announced two weeks ago. But since then, the story has continued to develop, and I've been really fascinated following along. So first, let me recap a little bit about what happened. So the breach came to light when links to the stolen information of nearly 5 million people, which included the tax ID numbers, names, addresses, and additional personal information, was emailed to local news agencies. The hacker emailed the information from a Yandex email address and claimed to be a Russian hacker. And in the email, he said something um, along the lines of, your government is stupid, your cybersecurity is a parody. So this is a, a rough translation from the Bulgarian. But upon discovery, the hack was first attributed to a Christian Boykov, a 20-year-old cybersecurity professional from Bulgaria, who first gained prominence two years ago for hacking into the Bulgarian Education Ministry's website to expose its vulnerabilities. At the time, he described the work as fulfilling his civic duty. But upon his arrest, the country's prime minister called Boykov a, quote, wizard or magician for his hacking abilities. Um, He had a lot of other colorful things to say about him as well, but kind of the wizard kind of capsulates really most of, of what he had to say. But not long after Boykov's arrest and after having his computer seized, he was released after charges were downgraded. And allegedly, after Boykov's encrypted and password-protected computers could not be accessed by the authorities who arrested him, he has denied all charges and said the security services threatened him upon his arrest. Boykov works for a company called the TAD Group, which is a cybersecurity company that was founded in California but has significant presence in Bulgaria, as well as outfits in Dublin, Ireland, and in Bucharest in Romania. TAD Group has vigorously defended Boykov as well as another employee that was arrested after the breach. 
As news of the hack was unfolding, the Bulgarian manager of the TAD group, Ivan Todorov, was on a flight to Canada for what he claimed was a long-planned holiday. A European arrest warrant was swiftly issued for allegations of cyber terrorism, and he was ordered to return to Bulgaria. When Todorov was reached in Canada, he said that he and his company did not break the law. He said, quote, and this is translated from Bulgarian by Google, we have been trying to improve the security of private and public institutions for three to four years. We want to work for the benefit of the state, not against it, unquote. As of this morning, so which we're taping of Tuesday, July 30th, Todorov has arrived in Sofia and has swiftly been arrested. He has denied all of the charges. As he was en route and two weeks after the first data breach, a new database of information from Bulgarian sources was uploaded to hacker forums. So it's a secondary hack. And it's important to point out here, at the time of the initial hack, the director of the country's National Revenue Agency, so the agency whose data was compromised, was on holiday. But despite the hack being the largest in the country's history and one of the first instances where nearly an entire country's working population had their digital security and tax information compromised, the director of the agency declined to cut her holiday short to manage the crisis, which has led to suspicion that there is a conspiracy. It is also important to note that under GDPR, the Bulgarian tax agency is liable for their security vulnerabilities and can be fined up to 20 million euros for not adequately protecting the data of their citizens. The fact that the initial data breach was disclosed by it being emailed directly to news organizations, as well as the public statements made by the accused, makes me think the breach was clearly the work of white hat hackers. However, the secondary breach to close on Sunday does suggest that there have been some serious security vulnerabilities in the system that might not have been patched, so that once those vulnerabilities were brought to light, became open season for less ethically inclined hackers. It's also important and interesting to report here that Bulgarian public institutions have been the subject of hacking numerous times over the past years. In 2015, hackers took down the country's national election site, and last year, hackers took down the country's national assembly site before elections and brought down the country's commercial register for nearly three weeks. So I wanted to bring everyone up to speed on what's going on here because things have strongly diverted since the story is first reported. It's important to, to note that not and that no one has yet been convicted of any crimes and investigations aren't going. But as things continue to develop here, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. Wow, this is a great story. <clears throat> this just uh, sounds like a definition of uh, clusterfuck, really. <laughs> right, and there's really so much that more that we can say here, but it really does seem that there are some serious security vulnerabilities that the state hasn't been able to take care of adequately. And something that the prime minister mentioned in his comments about the wizard hacker was that he should actually be working <laughs> for us. So we'll see. Yeah, that'd be a good idea, I suppose. But yeah, the sheer scale of uh, of this is uh, quite uh, quite fascinating. I mean, basically the whole working population of the country having their data exposed—that's pretty bad. But also, I read, I think, in some of the earlier reports that some of the data was like old, and some of it was like years old. Right. And some of the new information that's come out recently, so just on Sunday when this new drop happened, um, it was uploaded directly to different hacking sites. Um, so it 
gives indication that there is another hack going on um, that makes potentially even even more critical information is being is being disclosed. So it is very worrying. Well, I mean, we could uh, we we could have a totally uh, separate uh, podcast uh, d- dedicated to all the all the hacks and, and all the information security issues that are coming up across the world right now, and there is lots of them. I read uh, I read a couple of. Um, uh, sort of uh, telegram channels where people just write about uh, info information security issues and i can i can tell that every almost every single day there's a pretty big uh, leak of uh, uh, personal information uh, somewhere in the world it's really it, it's really much worse uh, than we might uh, expect if we don't uh, if we don't follow this sort of news right and something that i think gdpr makes very clear is that there are kind of very swift financial fines for countries that don't comply but there really isn't anything to that from the from the EU or elsewhere that helps countries get their cybersecurity um in in a secure state and and kind of can help help assist them here because it seems like especially in much of the reporting about this breach and the previous breach from the country is that the country is really having um, a difficult time being able to fully to protect their public and, and private information finding a solution that really enables the country to actually take care of their own uh, data security um, it just seems to really be missing. So while GDPR can fine um, them pretty heavily, um, it doesn't really have any mechanism for helping them get out of this situation. They kind of have to figure that out on their own. Yeah, I agree. But also, again, this scale is sort of unprecedented, uh, and it does show a systemic problem that uh, that has to be dealt with. So, yeah, we will report uh, uh, later on uh, whatever developments uh, happen on this story. Uh, for now, we can. Just move on, I suppose, to the interview of the day, and that's the one with Rietta Ilo, the International Affairs Manager at uh, FIBAN. Uh, I talked to Rietta uh, back in Vos in June at the Startup Extreme Conference, and uh, we discussed uh, the ecosystem of the Nordics and uh, the angel investing uh, uh, landscape around there. So let's listen to this uh, together, and we will be back soon with the recommendations of the week. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degelo reporting today uh, for tech.eu from Voss, the city in Norway where uh, Startup Extreme uh, is taking place. And now I have a chance to catch up with Reata Ilo, who is with uh, FIBAN. Reata, great to meet you and thanks a lot for taking time to talk. Of course, my pleasure. So uh, can you start with uh, telling a little bit more about uh, what uh, FIBAN is doing and what your role uh, there is? Yes, Certainly. So FIBAN comes from words Finnish Business Angels Network, uh, which is basically, well, self-explanatory, but a network of business angels. We have currently almost 700 members, which makes us one of the largest and definitely most active angel networks in Europe. All right. And uh, and I work there as the international affairs manager, uh, which basically means that I try to get as many international angels invest into uh, Finnish or Nordic companies together with our members, as well as I try to get our members invest into great companies abroad. 
Right. And uh, sorry, how come that uh, Finland has more business angels than uh, anywhere else in Europe? Is there any reason for that? Well, we keep laughing about it that FIBAN members are like girl or boy scouts. In Finland, we just have that mentality that if someone is doing something, we realize we are too small to work on our own. So we gather up in, in under one umbrella. So girl or boy scout with just more money on our members than regular scouts would have. In other countries, the angel investing scene is much more fragmented. There are smaller angel networks, which are usually local or just a bunch of friends who like to invest together. But at Finban, we believe that there's power in the masses. Right. And you are uh, the international affairs manager. So what uh, what's your daily job involved? What do you do? Right. Uh, well, it's a, it's a vague word and it comes with a reason that I do a lot. It's a small organization of five people working full time. Uh, but what I do, as said, I facilitate funding rounds. So I gather a group of angels. We gather a group of startups together with either Arctic 15 or Slush, two of the biggest uh, startup conferences in Finland. And uh, then I just make sure that at least two investments happen in a year. And as said, I try to make both the angel group and the startup group as international as possible. Also, FIBAN organizes delegation trips to other ecosystems. So we have been to London, to Stockholm, to Amsterdam, to Tel Aviv, to benchmark and learn from other ecosystems as well as meet with local investors. So I guess that's a million other things such as speaking in events such as Startup Extreme are on my table. So what did you what did you speak uh, what was your speech about today sort of extreme cross border investing right. which is uh, close to my heart and uh, I feel that although it might seem obvious that yeah yeah let's do cross border but um it, it's still not it doesn't come into reality so uh, nordic countries are and baltic countries great countries but small even the whole like area combined it's only like 30 something million people uh so we try at fiban to make everyone understand that collaboration investing together and into companies also abroad benefits everyone so when you say cross-border, you mean, uh, first of all, within the Nordics and Baltics region? Well, yes, because angel investing has previously been even more regional. Uh, so previously, there was a saying that if you're an angel investor, you should only invest within a two-hour um you know, ride with your car. Uh, now we like to say that it's a two hour flight. So that covers the, uh, so-called new Nordic area. So the Baltics and the Nordics. And we feel that the mandate for angel investors is, um, biggest there. Okay. This is interesting. So, and, uh, you mentioned, uh, uh what is it? Two deals uh, per year that, uh, you're, uh, sort of KPI is that doesn't sound too ambitious or am I just wrong and, and don't understand something? It's actually quite good. So angel investing uh, is, well, maybe a bit notoriously known to be a slow process, uh, especially when you start from scratch. So first 
looking into deal, then meeting with the uh, entrepreneurs or with the founders and and just doing due diligence and negotiation. It can take up to six months or a year just to, you know, get everything. And then maybe you need to find other co-investors. That takes a lot more time. Uh, so we have created this process where within three months, we gather a group of angels, a big batch of startups, and we go through them uh, in these different stages where we go down and down and down. Uh, multiple cases might get investments, but currently all of my batches, all the angels have decided to invest uh, always into one company out of the, that big batch. And in terms of money, we have had over 50 angels invest uh, almost three quarters of a million within one and a half years. So we feel that's quite good. Actually. Great result. So, but uh, uh, this, uh, what you just said about the length, uh, that uh, the time that it takes uh, to prepare the deal, kind of sounds counterintuitive because when we talk about uh, angel uh, invest investments, uh, we kind of think about early stages. And uh, at the early stage, startups normally need uh, to get the funding as fast as possible because it's uh, kind of they can't really have uh, the runway. And uh, like in half a year, in eight months, in a year, they can just uh, they can fail really without uh, getting the money. That's exactly right. And that's why we want to keep the three month, uh, you know, limit to this process, which is by the way called Nordic Angel program. You can go and Google it. But, um, but basically it, 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 it's based on the fact that we have very strict deadlines, both for startups and investors. And, uh, and we have a clear process, how many weeks we spend at what stage, how many days we spend in what. And at the end of the day, especially sometimes investors might get caught up doing due diligence when actually there's so little due diligence materials that if you just go through them very logically and within the deadline, it doesn't take that long. So. Right, so you're just trying to structure the process. Exactly. Is this something unique uh, to FIBAN? Uh, it's together FIBAN and ESPAN, Estonian Business Angels Network, DANBAN, Danish Business Angels Network, and one of the Norwegian uh, Business Angel Network called BAN Norway. We four are running together this uh, program. Okay. Yeah, this is great. So, and in addition to all that you talked about before, you, the, you are involved with uh, the academia initiative, right? So what is it and uh, what's the goal here? Right. So FIBAN was actually established almost 10 years ago to the idea that the more, uh, you know, experienced and seasoned angel investors wanted to share their failures and their successes so that other new angel investors wouldn't repeat their mistakes. So FIBAN was established on that idea. So at some stage, you know, it wasn't enough just to do word to mouth, but in a structured way. Mm -hmm. So within the years, we developed something called FIBAN Academy, which has five modules. Each module takes up half of a day and you get all the basic of angel investing. We bring the best experts from KPMG or from law offices such as Bird at Bird. Their experts come and tell you all the technical stuff. And then we bring the seasoned, uh, super angels to tell their experiences in valuation or how to prepare for an exit and, and stuff like that. So that's, we have been doing for a few years now, but we wanted to, because there's a lot of demand for this kind of a smart money, uh, 
training. So we wanted to help others to benefit what we have done. So you can now actually go to fibanacademy.fi. So we put them online. So you can actually purchase all of those five modules online. And to top it all, because we have been doing these basic trainings for uh, several years already, we decided to collaborate with Aalto University, which is the number one university in Finland. And now they are running their own business angel academy where you can get uh, MA level uh, classes and courses about angel investing. So anyone interested in angel investing scene can uh, benefit now and get university level training in those as well. Oh, this is really interesting. And uh, do you see a lot of interest in that? Oh yes, we uh so it was launched at the end of spring. Two weeks ago, FIBAN organized the biggest angel investor congress in Europe called IBAN Helsinki 2019. Uh and there we launched it uh to the bigger audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard that someone already purchased uh, one module. So we are on a very good start. And uh yes, we really think that there's need for this deeper level knowledge sharing. And uh- If there were one thing, uh, like one the most important thing that any business angel has to learn, uh, what would that be? Uh, learn from the best. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes uh, angel investors, because they are seasoned entrepreneurs or seasoned consultants, or, you know, they usually have a lot of uh, experience already. Uh, so they might think that, okay, I know this already, but usually there's always something new you can learn. So we really encourage our even seasoned on, um, angel investors to come to these training sessions because there's always something new and this field is changing all the time and um, tax legislation is, you know, changing all the time. So never stop learning. Right. And do you see, uh, like through the years that you've been doing this, do you see more new angel investors uh, coming on board or fewer or about the same amount every year what's going on there there's definitely more angel investor in the scene so fibon has never done active marketing we have never hold you know like events like hey come and join fibon and we have just organically grown to a network of almost 700 people who pay annual fee to be our member to be able to call themselves fibon angel investors And uh and now we see uh I'm collaborating together with uh Finnish Entrepreneur Association, which has, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of members who are just entrepreneurs. And uh and there's a lot of interest in that population as well to become angel investors. So we have now during this year more and more started collaborating to get their entrepreneurs also on board in angel investing. Right. Okay, this is it for my questions. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, Reyette, and uh, good luck with uh, everything you're doing. Thank you so much. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu, episode number 128. Uh, and uh, thanks, Reyette, for a great interview uh, once again, and we are ready for the recommendations part. Uh, I will start today. My recommendation is uh, a piece from uh, FT Alphaville, and the piece is called uh, Are Europe's Tech Unicorns Really Worth All Those Billions? 
Now, this is a really good one. Uh, we have mentioned a number of times before in this podcast, I think, uh, that uh, European fintech unicorns are gaining valuation in a rapid pace, uh, but there certainly will be consequences to that growth. The story uh, that I'm recommending today looks at a point that's been around for a while as well, and that's uh, that uh, the mega rounds of hundreds of millions of dollars are kind of the new exits uh, for many startups. So instead of uh, uh, going public, instead of uh, floating their shares, a lot of startups right now kind of decide to just raise very, very, very big rounds. Uh, the problem is, however, uh, that there still has to be a real exit at the end of the day, and that could be difficult with a stratospheric valuation like some of the European fintech uh, companies are having right now. Uh, quoting the piece, uh, the quote begins, being worth a billion dollars and exiting for a billion dollars are two different things. The quote ends. The story also quotes uh, Victor Basta from Magister Investors, uh, who makes a good point, and I'm going to quote uh, his statement in full. Uh, the quote begins, People are raising bigger rounds, and more of them, because they can. All good. But raising larger and larger rounds is a treadmill. You have to exit sometime. You start raising these kind of rounds, and then all of a sudden these companies have to be sold for billions. We do not want high-quality European companies who find they have no choice but to aim high and who risk flaming out as a result. Going broke is not for everyone. The quote ends. So I recommend you to read the piece. Definitely something to uh, think about, and there is much more to it than what I just quoted. And Natalie, did you have a chance to, to read this as well? I did. And I think it brings up an, a number of really interesting things. But for my recommendation this week, I'm taking kind of a very different approach. And this week, I wanted to highlight a piece by someone in the ecosystem, Latvian founder Raimund Skulbergs. And it's titled, How I Got My Early Stage Startup Acquired in Six Months. <laughs> and it walks through the process how he took his company wonderful and how they exited in a very short time. So quite a very different thing going on. But I think yep. it's a really important piece and not necessarily for the reasons you might think. And for all the practical advice that he sets out in the article, which it's probably great advice, but of course, all companies are unique and your startup um, experience might um, be very different. But here's why I think it's so important. The first is by writing this and sharing his experience, he's giving back and contributing to the ecosystem in an important way. Writing about your journey as a founder and sharing knowledge is so very important and is such a great way to help contribute to the ecosystem and the next generation of founders. This helps give the founders that follow uh, the opportunity to build and grow faster by learning from the experience of those that have gone before institutional knowledge in the startup ecosystem is so important. And much of what founders are reading in Europe, especially comes from the US. So it's great that there's something that um, we're hearing more local stories, especially as things change really fast. So getting in the practice of sharing and writing about your startup journey is, is really great for the next generation. He also gives a shout out to those that have helped him along the way, which I think is a great touch. And so he's sharing knowledge. He's giving credit to his supporters. And it's also really um, getting the very kind of human perspective. It helps build empathy, which is so important when building digital products. So I think this is a great article for other founders to look at as a model for effective piece of writing and how that can really um, be something that they have in their toolbox. But another reason why I think it's such a great piece is found in this passage, and I'm going to quote directly here. Since my exit, I feel so much more at peace 
calm. The anxiety has vanished. I feel happy. And I've already moved on to the next project and doing what I found my passion, building new products, taking them to market, hitting the wall, trying again and again, end quote. There have been some hot takes recently floating around the European startup ecosystem, suggesting that European founders exit too early and or they're selling out to the U.S. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast before. But as this piece really kind of brings home, exits happen for lots of different reasons. And I think it's important to remember that startups, especially those at an early stage, are so often the extension of the founders themselves. There are very human reasons for deciding to sell their company and to do something different. And I don't think founders that go that route should be criticized for that. And in that case, when Raymond sells his company, he gets so many benefits from it, especially in the mental health department. And it frees him to do something that he might be better suited at. So I think we should be looking at that as a win. And I'm really glad that he shared it. So I just wanted to share that all with you. Thanks a lot for this. Thanks a lot, Natalie. I think I think we have a really nice set of recommendations uh, this week. Definitely. Now it's time to wrap it up. This is it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to us today. If you did, do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done awesomely by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andre at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Welcome to Europe again. It's great to see you. Thanks so much, Andre. Great to be back. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.